and welcome to the second installment of this interview series. I am Byron Bixler, one half of the Cinephile Delinquents, and I'm here with Tyler Macri, junior cinema and photography major here at IC to talk about his upcoming ACP fiction film that has yet to be named. Yeah. Uh, thanks for joining me, Tyler. No problem. Thanks for having me. So this film, can you just start out by telling us what it's about? Uh, yeah, the film is about uh, a guy, Jan, um, who has this carnivorous being living behind a wall in his attic. Uh, in the beginning of the film, we see him during his childhood finding it in this kind of um, dark, swampy area and bringing it into this house and um, not letting anyone see it. And then we, we flash forward and we're kind of given a portrait or a look into this person's life, um, trying to keep this thing alive and being dedicated wholly to its, um, you know, its maintenance, basically. Hmm. And so uh, when we spoke earlier, you referred to it as a surreal right. film. Absolutely. So surreal storytelling can mean different things to different people. Um, how do you personally go about expressing the surreal in your film? Um, to me, the the best kind of surrealism is very subtle. Um, I am a big fan of of you know David Lynch and Jan Svankmeyer, but I think that uh, in my personal experience, uh, being being in a dark you know uh, park last night, even walking around downtown Ithaca and seeing someone standing underneath a streetlight, and and the way that colors and lights have the ability to make reality seem very dreamlike for brief moments in time. Um, a really big influence on me was André Breton, who is a French um, literary figure. He did a book called Nadja, which I read a lot over the summer when I was writing the screenplay. Mm. And uh, he did the Surrealist Manifesto. And, um, you know, his stuff for me defines a lot of surrealism, which is just kind of seeing things which seem totally out of the ordinary for brief moments um, in our in our everyday lives. Hmm. Yeah, it kind of reminded me, the, the premise reminded me a little bit of something like um, like a Pan's Labyrinth sort of thing, right. where there's a world just beyond ours. Yes. Um, and I think about that, that child perspective. Um, I think there's something about the perspective of a child and how it lends itself to the surreal. Um, do you have anything to say on that? Um, particular dynamic or why you chose it for this um, film? Yeah, well, it's funny you bring up Pan's Labyrinth because um, Guillermo del Toro, I think, was influenced a lot and um, has gone on record, I'm quite certain, um, that Pan's Labyrinth was inspired by this short written by Arthur Machen, who was a champion of weird fiction. You know, I'm sure most people don't know Arthur Machen, but H.P. Lovecraft, who are these kind of figures who started reaching out into um, these weird territories, you know, um, and the, the, the work that Arthur Machen did was called The White People, and it was about a child who is trying to escape, or was it The White People? Um, I don't know. It was one of his stories um, about a child who is in kind of an oppressive atmosphere and is going out into the woods and, and finding all these little slivers of truth that are also kind of dark. And um, childhood for me, you know, is magical because it is incredibly surreal. And there is kind of this 
beautiful darkness to it because you're emerging into adulthood, which is fraught with violence and downfall. And really, you know, uh, there's there are many arguments to be made that it is you are at your peak um, as far as observing reality when you're a child, and that um, the older you get, it it just becomes all these streaks of of you know. Um, violence in many cases and and a lot of things that you observe from your parents um so i guess childhood yeah is 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 a big thing for me and i chose to represent it with surrealism in this film um be, because i think when i was a child i had you know um there's so many weird stories that i think are at the base of your of your like your aesthetic or your voice or whatever you want to call it that are um, rooted in childhood. Mm-hmm. And uh, for this for this film, I, I keep telling the story. Um, when I was a kid, I like I, I think everybody has a dead bird story. It's like this joke I have with my friends that we all have traumatic memories with birds. And so, like at, at the at the root of things, I like to think everyone has a dead bird story. Um, I grew up uh, in this, like, you know, total um, generic cookie-cutter suburbia, and we had a deck in our backyard, and birds liked to build nests underneath it. And I used to watch the birds grow after they hatched, and they looked disgusting. I don't know if you've ever seen, like, mm-hmm. a chick. Yeah. But the way the feathers protrude from, like, the their flesh, it's, it's, it's horrifying. And the bird ended up, uh, the two chicks, one of them ended up uh, flying and disappearing, which was weird to me that that this, that this one of the siblings would totally abandon the other one. And then the other chick fell off out of his nest and um, was wobbling around in my backyard, and me and my cousin were trying to help it, and he accidentally stepped on it and snapped its neck. Mm. And I was just, like, destroyed for days. And... Um, you know, one of my other friends, Zach, um, who did sound on this film and is editing it with me now, Zach Chapel, tells this story about uh, he had a birthday party when he was in fifth grade, and they found a dying chick, and they were all standing around deciding, okay, someone's got to drop a rock on this thing's head because it's suffering, mm-hmm. and uh, they, like, drew straws, and thankfully it wasn't Zach, but the memory is, like, traumatizing but mm-hmm. magical for him. <laughs> so I guess this story is a dead bird story <laughs> um, about a traumatic moment, which then kind of you redefine memory, I guess. Um, the more you, you think of a story in your head, you totally change it because things that happen, you know, the way they happen in reality, it's very plain and black and white, but it's your voice that makes it magical. So, um, yeah, the story is like a, I like that, I, a dead bird story. <laughs> about, yeah, this kid who has something really weird happen to him and then turns and grows up to be this freaky guy. Maybe that could be your title. Dead Bird, Dead Bird Story. Story. <laughs> yeah. That's an idea. That's an idea. It's it's a very interesting combination of taking trauma and pulling something more fanciful or imaginative out of it. Right. Um, it sounds like you didn't so much draw from an exact experience and, like, Put it into the film as much as the feeling of that experience. Yeah. So what what feeling exactly are you trying to convey, or are you trying to get out of the audience, perhaps? I think we're definitely trying to convey a sense of loss, um, and 
going into it, I wanted to explore the ways that we carry that child with us and how, you know, some people have really shitty things happen in their childhood and some people not so much, but no matter what, everybody was traumatized at some point as a child. It's inevitable you're going to be traumatized. Mm -hmm. And that tiny fracture totally changes the way you grow. And I have always been fascinated with what does that look like? Um, and then when you when you go into you know surreal storytelling, you you just have a blast because you think of a specific instance and you say, how do I represent that with otherworldly photography? And it's just total blast. Um, so what, I mean, your question was. Um, I don't know if I answered it. Uh, yeah, I think you did. Yeah. You, you talked about loss. Right, loss. I was asking about what exactly you want your audience to walk away with from this feeling. Right, um, absolutely loss. Yeah, and, and this idea of going to the surreal, um, I am personally a, a big fan of surreal filmmaking because I think it just opens the box completely to mm -hmm. all of these possibilities. And you can tackle concepts that are rooted in reality and really unconventional, strange ways. Mm -hmm. um, and it also goes to this thing about metaphor um, and metaphorical monsters, perhaps, yeah. in the form of this creature. I'm not sure what it, the nature of it is. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, th so, you know, being <laughs> making a student film, uh, you know, you don't have a huge budget to create some grandiose... I, I would love to make a strange, you know... Kafkaesque creature, um, but it, it's humanoid. Um, when we first see it, uh, it's it's fetal, uh, humanoid, kind of this slimy, goopy little pink fetus thing. And as it grows, we never do see much of it because it's behind this door. But its hand is completely covered in sludge and mud, you know, like the swamp where it came from, and it's got long nails, and it's always bloody because it's just feasting upon flesh behind this door all the time. Um, and we don't ever see much more of the creature. Um, but yeah, very humanoid, very slimy, very dark. Um, and I think the idea for it actually came, uh, I had a, you know, the, the basis of all good surrealism dreams going down into this, which there's a scene kind of like this in the film, going down, um, in the dream I was going down into a, um, like a flooded uh, basement. This and, is a dream you actually had? Yes. Okay. And uh, I, I always have dreams with water in them. I've, I don't know why. Um, and I was going down into this basement with the knowledge that there were like fish to be had down there. And so I had a fishing pole and I was trying to catch something in the water and this just this man was standing in the corner, completely covered in mud, mm. staring at me. And I didn't notice he was there at first. But then I'm down in this basement fishing, and it's completely dark. Mm -hmm. And then I see these two eyes, and it's like, okay, do I do I run, or do I just keep doing this, hoping that he won't he won't come at me because I'm not afraid? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I was very afraid. <laughs> but I don't, you know. And the dream just ended, you know. Um, but, yeah, so it's kind of just a slimy person, um, but you never see the face. You never see much more than its hands and its shoulders. So it's really kind of obscured. So you talked about Lynch earlier as an influence, and um, 
not Del Toro, but an influence of Del Toro's. Right. Um, but I, I recall when we were first talking about this over messaging, I, I brought up Tarkovsky because mm-hmm. you showed me a couple stills from it, which reminded me of The Mirror and yeah. you brought up Ivan's childhood. Uh, is there any of his influence in here, do you think, at least visually speaking? I would say visually, yeah. Tarkovsky is kind of weird where I actually, I've only seen two Tarkovsky films. Mm-hmm. Um, but you go into his work and it just kind of changes cinema for you. Um, I would say for me, we. I think I now that I'm thinking about it, a lot of Tarkovsky's movies... And, and, you know, the thing about Tarkovsky is he's everywhere. I haven't seen all of his films, but there's, I've seen tons of screen grabs. Like, I haven't seen Ivan's Childhood, but that screenshot that you sent me in the, the, with the water and the, and the trees, mm-hmm. I've seen that. Yeah. Um, but Stalker, I would say, um, is, is definitely a big one for me. I love the way that he uses landscape in it, and, and the landscape becomes kind of this 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 emotional place which doesn't even really feel it doesn't feel realistic in any way it feels like they're traversing some kind of emotional um place and and throwing those little bolts in the green grass and going through these um flooded um tunnels i think that in this film there's a lot of imagery which you could compare to uh, some of those kind of abandoned areas in Stalker for sure. Hmm. Now let's let's get into that that topic of landscape. So where did you film exactly? Okay, so we filmed um, in West Danby. There's this uh, nature preserve. I don't know the the name of it right now, but Zach, you know, there's a lot of just shenanigans behind the making of this film. Um, I sent the poor guy out. Uh, we needed to find a, we I knew exactly what I wanted, which was a swampy area with trees growing up out of the water. It mm-hmm. needed to have that. So it was like two o'clock on a Tuesday, and I had class, and I just just said, "Come on, man, just go, just go look for us, you know. So he's driving around, and apparently his dad is is, I believe, a biologist. He used to work at Cornell and has all these all this knowledge of different swampy areas and sends his son on this kind of goose chase through uh, New York. So Zach ends up in West Danby and is walking into this wooded area. Uh, His dad tells him there's like a pond out in the woods out there somewhere. Zach's walking around for like an hour and basically gets lost but finds the swamp. Mm -hmm. So he sends me a picture and we're freaking out. It's beautiful. Um, And then his phone dies. And he tells me later that he didn't bring his water bottle. Zach carries a water bottle with him everywhere. Um, It's it's hilarious, and had no phone service and was convinced that he was going to die. Um, so, you know, Wonder he walks... Project it, situation. Right, and <laughs> starts galloping. He's this big six-foot-one guy gall- running through the woods and then just kind of, like, stumbles across two people and is, like, really embarrassed and just tries to play it cool. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, finds the road eventually. So we almost had somebody... Um, you know, starved to death out in the bush for for the film. So we filmed there. Um, we got up, you know, at six in the morning, and we had actors, you know, wading out into the water, hoping that they wouldn't have their toes snapped off by you know uh, turtles. Then we also filmed in Connecticut. We filmed in an abandoned um, 
it was a mill at one point on the side of the Farmington River, and there are these two turrets that go down into the ground where the turbines were for the mill. And I, I believe it hasn't been used probably for close to 100 years, so it's just this brick foundation mm. bringing a very expensive camera down into that um, was crazy. And then we also filmed in an abandoned foundry in Danby. I mean, not Danby, um, Elmira Heights. Uh, this gentleman we just stumbled upon allowed us to use it. And that's used in the butcher shop sequence of the film in, in this guy's basement. So, yeah, a lot of weird places. Yeah. Um, the swamp especially sounds like it really works for the the surreal tone of mm-hmm. the film because the swamp is just so perfect for that because it, it's this in-between kind of area where it's not quite it's not quite all land and not quite all water. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Was, was there a, was there a certain time of day that you shot there? Were you going for the magic hour thing? We were going really early in the morning. The first time Zach brought us there, we went at like eight thirty, and because it's so cold in the morning, um, it gets this mist over the water. And becomes really foggy and beautiful. But unfortunately, when we went um, to film there, it wasn't the same. So we didn't get all the we didn't get all the the fog. Um, but we shot primarily during the golden hour. Yeah, really early in the morning, and then right before sundown. So you know, and that's just for the lighting. It's just you mm-hmm. know beautiful. Um, but it looked it looked pretty cool. Yeah. I want to go also to, uh, before we, we started recording, you were telling me that you were looking for music right. to use. Um, what role does music play in this film, or at least the feeling that you're trying to get across? Um, I think by the time it's finished, hopefully the music will convey that kind of underlying sense of a lost childhood, something that's beautiful, that is coming to the character in times of distress, because he is so obsessed with his childhood indirectly. That is, you know, a big part of this film is that this guy can't let go of his childhood. And so I think the music will be very soft. We're looking for some ambient pieces. We're looking for, you know, I I told you we were going to try to use an Eric Satie piece, who's Mm -hmm. this minimalist composer. And um, so it'll be very soft. It'll be very, I I think it'll be minorly unsettling probably. but just kind of like whispers in the background, you know. Um, and, and that's how I think I like using music in, in pieces for the most part, you know. Just not doing too much work, um, but also giving you a real sense of what's going on inside this person's mind and, and the way they feel. So this is the point in the interview when I kind of shift from the film over to um, slightly more abstract questions. Sure. Um, so I I would like to start with just saying when did you when did you start making movies or when did you first get that impulse to want to make films? Um, Has it always been there or was it just a few years back? It, it it's been there for a very long time. I got hold of this like uh, I think it was like a high camcorder we had. Um, in my basement, and I, I was uh, probably eight years old, and I had my friend, my best friend at the time, Gavin McRae, over the house, and we were in the basement, and I had always been fascinated by, like, claymations. 
but you have to do all like in-camera editing with the tape. So we lined up Play-Doh on the floor and made like a, a video of a snake, you know, going and then the snake gets, you know, eaten by a bigger snake. And uh, we're just hitting stop and record on the camcorder. It looked absolutely horrible. <laughs> so I used to just goof off and make videos with my friends all the time. And there's a lot on YouTube of that. Um, there's there's this, uh, I, I, my favorite, you know, thing, like, if somebody asks, like, tell me something about yourself, tell me some secret fact about yourself, is that one of these stop-motion videos I made on YouTube, uh, I used my Jurassic Park action figures, <laughs> and it got over a million views somehow. Really? So there's this video up there that I made, yeah, called wow. Jurassic Park Rumble in the Jungle. And wow. I used, <laughs> I was, yeah, always obsessed with my Jurassic Park toys. Um, so I used to do stop motions and then, you know, the cla- every, I, I think every middle school era film student, um, you know, can say they did the jackass ripoff videos at some point, which I used to do. And I used to make a lot with my dad, too. Um, so it was, it was always a way for me to express myself privately sometimes or to hang out with my friends and goof off, and then a lot to um, bond with my dad because he he and I always used to do that together to you know have things to do during the summer times when I was in like third grade. We used to make videos and put them on YouTube. So I've always just done it as a way to 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 get closer to other people, strangely enough, and also to just like express myself. Um, and uh, yeah, I just love it. I think it's it's so much fun. Yeah, it's very cool. And uh, the name of that video again? Uh, <laughs> Jurassic Park Rumble in the Jungle. Rumble in the Jungle. Rumble, wow. Yeah, uh, I'll need to check that out as soon as it's over. <laughs> over a million views. Really? Over a million. Wow. Views. <laughs> I don't know how it happened. Someone I, found it and probably shared it somewhere. I yeah I. If that is the case, I don't know, but it's great. It still gets comments, and there'll be a guy saying, like, you know, um, because in the videos all the dinosaurs fight, and uh, Carnotaurus, you know, never would have been beaten by Dilophosaurus. You suck. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's still a pleasure to go look at those comments. <laughs> so uh, moving forward from being a, a child-aspiring filmmaker, um, what's the ideal for you going forward um, like if you could choose what kinds of films you want to make, what would you choose? Um, that's a really good question. And it's a conversation that I like find myself having more and more with friends is just how is it that we're so content at this point in our lives with not knowing what the hell we're going to do with ourselves? And I guess maybe that even begins to answer the question right there. Make um, a film about that. <laughs> well, that I have no idea. What okay. I, you know, I I like to make I, I like to try to make films that I want to see. And so, um, I guess moving forward, I would love to be able to make films that you know make use of surrealism that aren't so conventional always. Um, I would love to be able to have time and freedom and money to to explore what what filmmaking means to me. Uh, right now, I'm 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 still utilizing narrative, but I think that a lot of of what we have to explore as filmmakers um, 
is, is, is going away from that, you know, um, and defining it for ourselves, which of course is experimental. Um, I like to tell stories, but I also sometimes feel uh, limited by the expectations mm -hmm. um, that people have of me being a filmmaker. And I think that we have a lot to catch up on. Um, you know, you don't, you don't go into um, a gallery expecting um, Marvel comic book strips to be up on the wall. You're totally okay with, you know, Dolly. You're totally okay with Radon. Um, and I would love to uh, go to the future and see, you know, the, the Cineplex theaters playing movies like that. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, I guess with my future, I hope... To, to just keep experimenting and being able to do it. And um, as far as, like, there were two parts to the question. What I want to do with my future and the kind of movies yeah, that I want to make. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I still haven't played with documentary so much, but I would love to. I, I really like the idea of, of giving people a voice through film. Um, so, you know... For me, a big part of it is photography, too. Uh, so just playing with the way film can see the world, uh, that photography, that painting, that music cannot, and redefining it in some way, hopefully. Um, it's, a big, it's a big goal, but even if it's in a really small way, I'll be pretty happy. I could say that I did something that I hadn't seen yet. Mm. I'd be pretty satisfied. Clearly, give a lot of thought to uh, the nature of film itself as an art form, um, and so I, I wonder. This is a bit of an essay question, so you can skip over it if it's a little too, too broad. Okay, sure. Um, but what, in your mind, is the greatest value that cinema has to offer to either the individual or society as a whole? Like, what do you think? What What do you think is well, I guess it's already in the question. What, right. what is valuable about film compared to reading a book or watching? What is it? Um, I think that it, it for me at least in my lifetime, has, has given me such a big chunk of spirituality because it is showing you raw life, unless it's a CGI, you know, fest avatar. Um, but you can point a camera up at the sky and catch seagulls you know um in just the right way and it kind of makes you realize everything that you see is an extra it, it's it's all emotion and um i think that images have this ability especially moving images have this ability to convey wow everything that i see is almost a projection of what's going on on the inside mm -hmm. um and Cinema, you know, you go in and you see a really good movie with this tracking shot going through. Um, you know what's a perfect example? Last year or two years ago, I know Filmic had Koyana Scotsi, and oh, yes. the movie changed me forever. It was a, that night was it was incredible. I left and I I wandered around campus. I stared into a mirror and cried for like ten minutes, and then went downtown and lost myself. That movie's changed me forever because all those images, they were real. There's nothing fabricated there. All that we did was put a frame on reality. And when you just put a frame on reality, you realize reality is art, everything around you. And now we're going into like Dadaism or whatever. But sure. um, I guess that's what cinema does for me that nothing else does. 
is it forces me to confront this notion that, wow, everything is absolutely meaningful and there is no excuse not to love life. Um, mm. It doesn't always feel that way. You know, I'm a yeah, sure. miserable fuck just like everybody else. <laughs> but when, 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 when cinema gets me really going, um, it makes me feel like that. So that's what it does for me. So I'd like to end on a question that is probably going to become kind of a regular question in this interview series. Yeah. I asked it to uh, Casey a couple of weeks ago. Cool. So what is your Mount Rushmore of cinema? So this is, you got four spots on the mountain to fill okay. up. Uh, four people, or you could say films, that have made a special impact on your life and the way that you see cinema. So these four films or filmmakers? I would say people. Like It doesn't have to be filmmakers. It can be an actor. It can be a composer, a cinematographer. Like anyone in the world of film who has majorly affected my work and life. Yes. Four of them? Four. Um, Okay, well, the first one, without a doubt, Werner Herzog. I know you know I've, you know, I never shut up about Werner Herzog. And you shouldn't. He's Uh, he's great. He's great. Um, I think that he, I don't even, I can't even begin. He's just, um, the way he makes films, so much about Werner Herzog is the mythology of Werner Herzog. And this idea that the making of a film can be as much a part of the art as the film itself. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's he's definitely one. Um, I think someone else who I've been very fascinated by is... um, Philip Glass, you know, I can't speak so much about him as a person because I'm weird with music. Um, I just, I tend to stay away from from the musician as a person and just totally get blown away by their work. Mm -hmm. And I've listened to so much Philip Glass, um, and he's impacted my my writing and everything so much just with his sound. Um, I think, who else? Um, John Cassavetes... Uh, last year, I saw a woman under the influence, and it it was it's such a beautiful film. The way that he approaches actors, and and the way that he has this signature kind of um, uh, storytelling that feels so raw. I really like this idea that we can think about how the making of a film is an incredibly valuable process. And I love John Cassavetes because I can almost see that a film is being made. Not in a distracting sense, you know? Um, And of course, it's never self-referential. There's never, you know, a moment where you see the crew or anything, but you feel that a movie is being made in some kind of way that is really special to me. Um, And then the fourth, maybe. um, uh, Can I do a film? Yeah, sure. Um, Possession by Andrzej Zuweski. Oh, yeah. uh, the, the, the Polish filmmaker is insane. Um, the camera whips all over the place. There's, there's, that work definitely has had a big influence on this piece. Um, and I guess that movie blew me away because it goes over the top in pretty much every way and not in the trauma kind of way. Sure, um, I was, course. you know, I was always used to over the top meaning B quality. And when I saw Possession, I was blown away because I thought, wow, that was hyperbolic in every single sense, but it was also incredibly meaningful. Um, so, yeah, 
And also, he's incredibly political, but you don't sense it. He, he really teaches me um, that the political can be really personal, and, it, and you don't have to feel burdened by approaching political uh, things as an artist. You don't have to feel like it's some duty. You just have to find yourself in these issues because we're all affected by politics. Um, so, yeah, I guess that would be the, those would be the four right now. Um, of course, for me, Mount Rushmore is always you know, melting and being built up again. But today, maybe that's the four. That's a really fascinating group. So again, it's Herzog, um, Cassavetes, was the Philip was Glass, Philip Glass, and um, Possession. Possession. That's great. Yeah. Um, so, back to your film. Um, when are the screenings in Park? So the screenings, I believe, are on the ninth, which is very soon. Okay. Um, for ACP Fiction, and of course, we're still editing, even though it's on the ninth. That's uh, you know. Panic. <laughs> Panic. But, uh, yeah, I guess what we'll end up screening there will definitely be, it will not be the final product, so we're going to keep working on it. But, yeah, that screening will be on the 9th, and there's a lot of other really talented people's movies playing, so it's totally worth checking out. Do you intend on sending it to festivals afterwards? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think that we'll probably work on it for another month or two after that screening, you know, just really make sure we are happy with what we have. I think that... A lot of the times when the when the screening at Park is over, it's like, okay, my movie's done. Mm-hmm. But I definitely think we're going to need some more time. Um, but, yeah, festivals for sure, really. So uh, if you're a student here on campus, keep an eye out for this film. Uh, you were calling it tentatively Tadpole Eyes? Tadpole Eyes. We were thinking of Tadpole Eyes. We were thinking of Jan's um, Minnow Bucket. Um, but I, I don't know. It, mm. You'll find out on the 9th. It'll, it'll need to have a title then. So come check that out as well as many other interesting films from that class. Uh, Tyler, thanks again for speaking with me. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.